there is no fate but what we make for ourselves. Welcome everyone to another exciting episode of Everything Zen, where we discuss everything in the Zenoscope universe from grim fairy tales to Unbound, Van Helsing to Man Goat and the Bunny Man, and so much more. This is Zenoscope. I'm your host, Mark Sells, and we're so glad to have you along with us for our July edition of Everything Zen. It's vacation time, and things are definitely heating up as we enter the middle of summer, a period known as the Dog Days of Summer. Historically, these days were observed within ancient Roman and Greek astrology and connected with bad luck, mad dog attacks, unexpected thunderstorms, heat, and drought. And they gained their name as Dog Days because they were connected with the star Sirius, which is part of the Canis Major constellation and is known simply as the Dog Star. In addition to Independence Day, July has some pretty tasty month-long observances, including National Watermelon Month, National Ice Cream Month, and National Hot Dog Month, which is fitting considering the annual tradition of the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest in Coney Island, which saw Joey Chestnut power down 63 hot dogs to win his 15th contest, Mickey Sudo, 40 hot dogs, and a decisive comeback win for the women's title. On July 5, 1946, the world's first bikini was unveiled in Paris. Sony introduced the Walkman on July 1st of 1979. First Walmart opened in Rogers, Arkansas on July 2nd, 1962. Twitter was launched on July 15, 2006 in its 140-character glory, and Donkey Kong was released by Nintendo on July 9, 1981, marking the debut of everyone's favorite plumber hero, Mario. And let's not forget, one of my favorite movies of all time was released in July. Enough road to get up to 88. Roads? Well, we're going, we don't need Roads. That's right. Back to the Future was released on July 3rd, 1985, featuring the DeLorean DMC-12 time machine, high school student Marty McFly, and eccentric scientist Dr. Emmett Brown, played by Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd. The time-traveling adventure would go on to become the highest-grossing film of 1985. And speaking of Back to the Future, Power of Love's Huey Lewis has a July birthday, as does Jennifer Lopez, J.K. Rowling, and pretty much every single 80s male action movie star. From Tom Cruise to Sylvester Stallone, Harrison Ford to Arnold Schwarzenegger, and oh yeah, Knight Rider's David Hasselhoff. Coming up on this month's podcast, Amber will be stopping by with some Christmas in July fun. Noah's got some fantastic fairy tale focused podcast Word of the Month prizes for you. We'll be joined by Zenoscope publisher and Sleeping Beauty expert Dave Francini. Later on, we'll be speaking with Gail Ann Hurd, legendary writer and producer of a few films you may have heard of Terminator, Terminator 2 and 3, Aliens, Armageddon, The Abyss, truly the best of the best. So come with us if you want to live. The July edition of Everything Zen starts right now. Sweet princess, if through this wicked witch's trick, a spindle should your finger prick, a ray of hope there still may be in this, 
the gift I give it thee. Not in death, but just in sleep, the fateful prophecy you'll keep. And from this slumber you shall wake, when true love's kiss the spell shall break. Spoken by the youngest fairy, Meriwether, in the 1959 classic animated tale, Sleeping Beauty. It's about a princess who is cursed to sleep for a hundred years by an evil fairy known as Maleficent and can only be awakened by a prince's kiss, representing true love. The folktale has its origins from Italian poet Giambattista Basile between 1330 and 1344 in a collection called The Pentamerone. It was then adapted and published by French author Charles Perrault in 1634 and subsequently adapted by German academics the Brothers Grimm. But let's make one thing perfectly clear. Sleeping Beauty is no children's tale. In fact, in Basile's original version, the princess falls into a coma after pricking her finger on flax and is raped repeatedly by a wandering king who comes across her. He then witnesses her give birth to twins while still asleep, and when Sleeping Beauty finally awakens, the king's wife, the queen, a.k.a. Maleficent, discovers the infidelity and attempts to get the king to eat his own children while also attempting to push Sleeping Beauty into a bonfire. Instead, the king learns about this and murders the queen by pushing her into the fire so he can be with Sleeping Beauty. They get married and live happily ever after. And let's not forget the moral of the story. Those whom fortune favors find good luck even in their sleep. Ick, ick, ick. Along with Disney's classic animated version, the story has been popularized by the music and ballet by Tchaikovsky, and in live-action film and television versions such as Maleficent with Angelina Jolie, ABC's Once Upon a Time, and in the video games like Kingdom Hearts and Little Briar Rose. Sleeping Beauty made her first and only appearance in the Xenoscope universe in Grim Fairy Tales No. 5, published in March 2006. The story concerns a teenage boy who is attracted to a girl in his class, but is manipulated by the girl into getting drugs for her friends. Along the way, he discovers Sela's fairy tale book and reads the story of Sleeping Beauty, who is vain, self-absorbed, and forced into a hundred-year sleep. I won't spoil the ending for you here, but I will say, unrequited love is no love indeed. Now, 16 years later, Xenoscope revisits the classic tale in Grim Universe Presents Sleeping Beauty, written by Dave Francini with cover art by Igor Vitorino. And in this edition, she gets a complete makeover as a new hero in the Grimm universe. Talented graphic artist Rory Norris, who, when tragedy strikes, she loses her eyesight, discovers a new path, new dangers, and a new world we've never seen before. To discuss the newest character in the Grimm universe, we'll be joined by Sleeping Beauty creator and Xenoscope publisher Dave Francini. But before we bring Dave into the fold... Let's take a quick look at the prizes you could win if you enter our July Podcast Word of the Month contest. Yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. It's time once again for Zenoscope's Word of the Month Contest! This July, we're keeping the magic alive with some incredible fairy tale inspired prizes. Anybody can enter and anyone can win. 
To play, all you have to do is listen for this sound. When you hear it, we'll reveal this month's secret word or phrase. Email us at info at zenoscope.com with that secret word or phrase, and you'll automatically be entered into our raffle. One lucky first prize winner will be randomly selected to receive an adult coloring book box set, complete with colored pencils, collectible cards, and the first two volumes of our acclaimed Grim Fairy Tales adult coloring book. Two second place winners will also be selected to receive a supersized Grim Fairy Tales adult coloring poster book, complete with 20 tear-out posters. Additionally, a handful of runner-ups will be given exclusive discount codes that can be used to buy comics, collectibles, and more from the Zenoscope web store. Don't forget to send your submission to info at zenoscope.com for your chances to win. But remember, only one submission per person. Back to you, Mark. Thanks, Noah. We're back in the creator corner, and I gotta say, it's pretty cozy. Cozy enough for a long summer nap. Something our first guest could probably use a lot more of, working tirelessly for us at Zenoscope as our publisher and resident historian, Dave Francini. Dave joins us now to talk about the early beginnings of Sleeping Beauty and her prickly curse, the role of prophecy in the Grimm universe, his writing process, working with artists, and the new Grimm universe presents focused on Sleeping Beauty, written by Dave, that takes the fairy tale in an exciting new direction. Today, we are joined by Zenoscope's publisher extraordinaire, Dave Francini. Dave, it's always great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, I didn't know I was extraordinaire. I thought I was just very adequate, but I'll take I'll take extraordinaire. Beyond extraordinaire. Oh, <laughs> yeah. even better. Uh, we're here, of course, to talk about Sleeping Beauty, and Sleeping Beauty, or Aurora, as she is also known, is one of the most often forgotten princesses, at least in the Disney space she is. She's naive, not very dynamic, and she's asleep most <laughs> of the story. So what about her story do you find most fascinating? Um, I mean, that's the crazy thing, like doing a lot of research for the, like for this, like, because we take a lot of fairy tales and we we twist them. So like I had to read like, there's there's literally like eight different versions of this fairy tale. And yeah. some of them are really disturbing in the, in more of the adult, like, re, like, re, like region of it. Um, but they all kind of hit the same thing where it's, it's about this girl who's cursed. And some of the stories she's cursed to sleep for a hundred years and the kingdom sleeps that way. Uh, some of the, like some of it, she's cursed to sleep until like true love finds her. Uh, and then there's a mixture of like, some of them actually, I didn't know they included fairies and like different, like different fairies that kind of hit her. Um, so it's, there's so much stuff out there that like, it was just kind of like compiling that and and trying to figure out, okay, well, how does it fit in our universe? And then how do we how do we not bog people down with stuff they don't have to go read, but also still give true to people that are like, I know all the Sleeping Beauty stories. <laughs> oh man, they did that. Like that's cool. They threw that in there. And like I, I love that type of stuff. Like that's that's some of my favorite stuff is like Easter eggs and and long game of just like, oh well, they this is planted in there and then all of a sudden you're like, oh it makes sense now. Yeah, you don't want fans coming after you going, Mr. Francini, that's not part of the Sleeping Beauty canon. I'm like, it is now. <laughs> I'm like, that's why, that's what we do. I mean, that's, that's one of the coolest things. I mean, that's what I love about my job, too. I mean, being the publisher and doing all, that, like, doing all the publishing stuff is cool, but, like, my, the most fun I get to do is just create and write. And, like, doing this story was something that was, like, kind of stuck in my head for years. 
mm. like pieces of it. And then it finally had a chance to kind of come out. Sleeping Beauty, at least with Xenoscope, goes all the way back to Grim Fairy Tales number five, one of Xenoscope's earliest books, and um, will be featured in an upcoming Grim Universe Presents next month that you authored. How are the two stories similar? Are they similar? And how are they different in their depiction um, of Sleeping Beauty? They're similar in name and and, and, and basically the... And the, that's the it. Hor- well, and the horror aspects and a little... and like, But like what we've been kind of doing is taking... like I feel like with the Grim Volume 1, Grim Fairy Tales Volume 1, we, we, we touched on all these fairy tales and we reintroduced them back into the world and we had them in this, this book of fairy tales. And now... I, like what we've been we doing with like Bell and Gretel, we're kind of showing that these stories still resonate into our Grim Fairy Tale universe. Like the stories that were in that book were were more like based on stories of ancient lore, and now these are the stories of like almost like fate and destiny being fulfilled by people in our world that kind of recycle through that that those stories. So like with Sweet Beauty, these these stories. They're similar in in the concept, but they're they're completely different. Where we get a little, we get to delve more into the Sleeping Beauty mythos, where that we've created. And with this, it's like uh, the the main character is Rory. Um, it's a little bit like Aurora, but I, I mean, because I went through a lot of these different <laughs> things. But yeah, so it's Rory uh, Norris, and she's actually uh, it's modern day. It's set in uh, present day. Um, she she lives in Philadelphia. She's a, a graphic like graphic digital like artist, and what it, what the story kind of entails is like it, it goes on the fear of not being cursed to fall asleep, but her curse is she loses her sight, and mm-hmm. it, it's it's one of the biggest fears of somebody that like uses their eyes and their hands and their and their stuff to create. Like now it's like she's got to she got to also cope with that human like factor of like okay how do i live life like this but then by that happening it unleashes um a whole nother aspect of her life that she she only dreamed about like it's stuff that she's been dreaming about her entire life and now we we expand on that and realize why she's been dreaming about it her art is basically coming from her dreams and now we're seeing what those dreams always meant and I mean, so it's, 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 it's really different from like what we originally established, but it, it's kind of, we, we try to build a little bit off each one of those. So does she have any powers? Is there a curse of sorts? Um, you mentioned that she's been dreaming about all these things for a lot, large portion of her life. Is she asleep only to be, you know, woken so, up at some point in time? Without spoiling some of the, like some of the twist in there. Um, she she's basically destined there's a there's a destiny that like tied into a lot of these newer characters we're bringing out um and it's the it's the same fairy tale thing she can look at it as a curse um but it's more it's more of just a destiny and a prophecy that she's always been a part of that she's never really known um Mm -hmm. and as you read the story as we get through the story we start revealing where it came from, how it started, how she's involved in it, and and also how I'm trying to work my way around, not like spoiling pieces of it, but like how she's gonna overcome it or 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 give into it. Um, so like her powers are like her powers aren't in our world. Like like so to to go back to the Sleeping Beauty, she only can access her powers while asleep. 
So when she goes there, it opens up this it opens up this world that like shows what our subconscious looks like uh, w- when we sleep. But so where most of us kind of live in our own worlds, she has the ability to jump from world to world of everybody that's asleep. So it's mm-hmm. almost like moving through those different worlds. And there's other people that have had that access access to that power throughout time that we reveal. But she's she's basically discovering that now for the first time. And that's that's a lot of the like what we're gonna see in the story is what we like the worlds we create in our own dreams are things that she can access and see and things that she can enter. And and basically there's also an evil entity named Mr. Dread. Um, and it's something she's named since, like, that's not his real name, but that's something she's given him from, like, her childhood and from, like, all the nightmares she's she's had throughout her life. Um, and he's on the same course that she is, uh, making his way through dreams. Mm. You You touched on this a little bit, talking about fate. And one of the intriguing elements about the Brothers Grimm depiction is the fact, and I I'm not 100% sure, but Sleeping Beauty might be one of the only Brothers Grimm tales that involves prophecy. So she's preordained to prick herself on a spinning wheel and die or fall under a spell. In fact, I think her father, the king, like even goes as far as to destroy all of the spinning wheels. And yet somehow she manages to prick her finger and then she falls asleep. What role does fate or prophecy play in the Grimm universe? Um, in the, the Grimm universe overall, yeah. um, we pretty much do that with all of our characters. We don't openly say it, but I mean, if you look at like Grimm Fairy Tales with Sky, it was basically her destiny to take over for her mother. And as we, mm-hmm. as we reveal it out, like she wasn't like the prophesized like one to come. It wasn't, it, we're not going to jump into Star Wars like you are the chosen one, mm-hmm. but it's more like they were destined for these great powers and it's more, and so not everything's written, but the, the destiny of them receiving these powers and what they do with them gives them, it gives them more of a freedom and an ability to, to kind of shift the course of the grim universe. Mm. So like nothing's set in stone for these characters, but except for the, the, the tapping in of what they're, they're given. Um, but I mean, yeah, that's the thing too. Like, well, you read that, like, where it was like the, the the spinning wheel, and he destroys all of them, and then like at one point she goes and lives with fairies, and then they change her name and they hide her from the dark fairy. All of that's slightly incorporated into this, not necessarily the spinning wheel, but the the fact that she like the, the protection for her from from this darkness that's out there, and the inherent inevitability of like falling to the darkness regardless of the protection that was given to her um and you see that literally in the first five pages as it starts off like you you see you see that protection is is gone at this point um Mm. and then we go through the next 67 pages uh kind of kind of developing on that and and we kind of we we explore and we discover as she discovers throughout so it's never oh well you gotta. You should know this. It's more like, okay, we're figuring out as Rory figures out the life around her. Shifting gears a little bit, I recently saw an interview with Taika Watiti, the director of Thor: Love and Thunder, and he talked about writing and how sometimes writing was opening up your laptop, staring at the screen for eight hours, and shutting it off for the day. 
do you ever get writer's block? Have you ever locked yourself in a hotel room or is writing just easy and natural for you? <laughs> That's really funny. I, I just saw that meme the other day and I saved it on my phone because it's yeah. like it's something that resonates with probably all writers, all creators, not, not just writers, any, even artists. I'm sure they look at a blank paper and they're like, oh God, I got to draw this thing. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily writer's block. It's more just like sometimes there's, a, you know, you have a story in your head or you have ideas and it's kind of like ripping through that fog and getting all the other stuff out of the way to get to that. I mean, but there, there's times where you, you, you do, you sit there and you're just like, how do I get this started? And that's sometimes that's the hardest thing is just getting that spark started. But once you get it started, I feel at least for me, it's like once I get that first like page done and the first couple lines done and I get like the, the momentum to where I want to go, it kind of just, it, it kind of flows. Um, but I mean, even the same thing we like when we do our writers retreats with uh, like me, David, uh, Joe and Ralph, we literally lock ourselves in, a, in an Airbnb for like two, three days straight and we eat and we, and we, and that's it. We, we eat and we, we, we crack stories and we push it and we push ourselves, which is like, sometimes it, it, it's trying to get water from a rock, like a water from a stone. It's like, sometimes you're just like, there's nothing there yet, but we're like, we get, and we keep pushing. And that's, what's cool about the way we work is that like, say if you come in today and you don't, you don't have it, the fire to start making something right now, the other people on the team kind of pick you up, push you into, push you into the furnace. And you're like, all right. And you start building off each other. So that really helps a lot. But I definitely see like the, the, that, that quote from Taika where it's the same thing. It's like by yourself, it's definitely a lot harder. Cause you're just like, all right, where do I want to go with this? What do I want to do? I mean, but it's also a lot, a lot of like rewards at the end because you're like, all right, I took this blank piece of paper and I turned these 72 pieces of paper into 72 pages of script. And then when you get it to the artist and they start turning in things that are better than what you thought of, that's even cooler because you're like, oh man, I didn't think about that. Like, yeah, that's awesome. You're going to make me look great. <laughs> like, like that's one of the coolest things about like comics is like we get instant gratification. Like, like you, you get the gratification of writing it and then you get it to the artist and they get it back to you where like a movie or a TV show, like, all right, they write it, they film it, they take forever, they reshoot it, they do it over and over years again later. and it comes out of years later. And then it's like, for us, it's like, all right, we write it, we create it. We can literally change a script that day, change the page and be like, hey, draw this. And they draw it and send it back to us. And that's, that's amazing. I, 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 it, it's crazy how, how little we, it's not like we undervalue artists because we value artists, but it's like, it's how little we actually think about what they're doing is where they're taking these literally just blank pieces of paper and creating, like taking our thoughts and ideas and making them real. And that's, and we get so used to it because we see it every week. We see it every month. We see like, we, we constantly see it all the time, but it's like, they're truly like, it's like they're magicians. Like <laughs> It's like they're conjuring like, like some cr like crazy things that not all of us can do, but we don't really, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's weird. I, I think about it all the time when I see the pages come in. I'm like, I'm like, it's crazy how you don't really think about it because you just assume. But there's not like a machine that's making these. It's a person. I mean, <laughs> it, it's. I don't. Know. Sorry, I got off tangent. But I don't, no, but, actually, but, you just set up uh, beautifully the segue to my next question because talking about artists, you know, Zenoscope works with a bullpen of writers who come in. Uh, a lot of times they'll write a story or an arc and then we may not see them for a year or longer. Your situation is different though, because as publisher for Zenoscope, you're largely responsible for coordinating with the artists 
And I'm curious, and maybe our listeners are as well, how active are you in giving the artist direction with each comic, but more specifically, are you more active in the art when it comes to something like Sleeping Beauty, a book that you've written and have your own vision for? Um, yeah, I mean, for, for most of the, the, the books that we do, uh, we have David uh, Wall, our editor-in-chief. He's been running point on most of the editorial, uh, with, like direct connection with the artist. But for anything I write, um, like so like so he works hand in hand. So when they hand in, they'll hand in, like they'll get the script, he'll give them the script. They get layouts. Uh, they send layouts in, like basically really rough sketches of like what the page should look like and all that stuff. And then he gives notes on those um, combined with the writer and gets them to kind of go to the next step, which is pencils and inks and then colors. And it's the same process with letters. Um, so we work, we work really tightly with like all the artists and especially the books that like either I write or I edit. Um, Cause I, 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 I try to really push the artist sometimes and probably to the point where they're just like, please leave us alone. But it's, sometimes they'll send in layouts and you're like that that might not be exactly what i want like sometimes you're like oh my god they're blown away but sometimes you're like all right well you're not hitting exactly what i want so you'll go back in and redraw it and it's not like i'm redrawing like an actual really artistic piece of work i'm just redrawing it in like stick figures and pencils and kind of switching the angles and i'll send it back like this is what i was thinking like this is the idea and sometimes we kind of hit it sometimes we make compromises where we're like okay that's not going to work here um, but we're, we're pretty, we're pretty involved in everything that comes through. And it's kind of the cool thing about what we do, uh, with our company It's different from a lot of companies. Like, like we don't have that much of a separation between the art, the writing and the, and getting the books out there to the fans. Like a lot of times, like we're working in the, in the depths with, with the artist and making sure we're getting out exactly what we wanted and, and then giving them the freedom to kind of add and, and ad lib to it. But like it, it's, it's really, it's really fun and interesting. I, I, I think that it, I couldn't, I couldn't exist and make books without that part of it, where I really like getting the art in and kind of giving the notes and, and pushing it, and then like, and also too, sometimes they draw stuff that makes you change your script a little bit. You're like, they drew it better, they made the scene better, so like this dialogue doesn't work here. So it's like, okay, let's adjust and and, and move pretty quick. And I think that's the one thing too with, with comics is that we're constantly moving. We're constantly making changes. We're constantly adding things or, or deleting things that, that don't work. And, and it just, it happens so quick that sometimes a book comes out, you don't even get a chance to celebrate it. You're just like, okay, cool. That book's out. Let's move on to the next one. And you're like, all right. But I, 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 I it's, it's very interesting and fun. And it's something that like, I don't know how to explain really to people until you do it. And because it is, it's like once you get the pages in and you get the book in, it's like, it's like a holiday. It's like your birthday. But it's like, you, you get that every day. And that, that's the coolest thing, especially when you work with some really great artists, which we got lucky and we, we do. And, and then you watch them grow and you watch, and you get new, like new artists that kind of come on board. But it is, it, it, I don't know, it, it's, it, it's a, it's an awesome thing. And we, we really do, try to like keep our hands and everything and, and kind of work with the artist the whole time. Never ending collaborative process is what it sounds, sounds like. It adds to the, the lack of sleep on all parties. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. From, from writing to character to story and also the art, is there anything that makes this grim universe presents different from previous grim universe presents? Yeah. I mean, it basically, I mean, the, the writing, the art, like the process is all the same. 
Um, but what this part, what this book uh, delves into is a, a separate part of the grim universe that we haven't explored yet. Like we have our earth, the nexus, we have the different realms of power. We have like wonderland, neverland, Oz and mist. This is actually, you'll, you'll realize this world is, this world of dreaming is a, is a, like a thin veil world between like a membrane between our world and wonderland. Mm-hmm. So like, that's, like, you don't have to read and be well-versed in our wonderland stuff, but that's where this world is set. And, and we're introducing this new part of the world that never existed before. And it's going to tie a little bit into wonderland, a little bit into our world and, and kind of show you like, almost expand a little bit of our knowledge of how these worlds exist. And, and how we interact between them. Mm. So, like, yeah. So, that, I mean, that's the biggest thing about this one. I mean, besides introducing a new character, a new hero, a new new villain, um, it's really just inter- introducing a new idea of how our grim universe connects to each other. Will there be more stories for Sleeping Beauty, and will she appear in other storylines? Um, at this point. I, I, there's ideas written down. There, there's thoughts for it. Uh, we don't have anything solid yet. We're still working on our 2023 plan, which is coming up soon. Um, but I mean, I hope so. And I hope people react to her and, and, and enjoy her and like her story and give us the ability to tell more stories. I mean, a lot of times it comes down to the fan base. Like if, if the fans recept, like, like recept it well and, and they, they, they really like, take a liking to the character it gives us more of a leeway to be like okay well then we can do more with this character and kind of expand on it but i mean yeah like it's a grim universe so you you never know when she'll show back up and there's definitely ideas for it so we'll see how that goes coming up dave thanks so much for stopping by it's always a pleasure and uh now we can let you go so you can turn into sleeping beauty oh thank you thanks for having me nice it was fun yeah anytime If you'd like to learn more about Sleeping Beauty, stop by Zenoscope.com today and do a search on Grim Fairy Tales Volume 1. The graphic novel has the origin story of Sleeping Beauty, along with Rumpelstiltskin, Hansel and Gretel, and Red Riding Hood. All before Grim Universe Presents Sleeping Beauty drops early next month. Oh, good holiday, gentle viewers. Time to settle in, grab some iced cocoa or Coquito, and Holiday Ham, and tune in for a Christmas poem. I think I hear sleigh bells on the roof. I mean, it did recently snow in Denver in just May, so it does seem appropriate. Twas the night before Christmas in July, and it's time to repent for your sin. Not a creature was stirring, not even a Zenjamin. Carrie's laid out all who were wrong time after time in hopes that Krampus soon would arrive. To get into the holiday spirit, it's time to settle in for the horror happening in the almost most wonderful time of the year, Christmas, dot, 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 in July. Grim Fairy Tales, Different Seasons, number four, was written by Joe Brusha, Ralph Tedesco, and Pat Shan. Its synopsis reads, For more than 200 years, The story of the Brothers Grimm enchanted millions of readers around the world. Adapted from and inspired by the original works, Xenoscope's Grimm Fairy Tales explores a much darker side of these classic stories. Sending in illustrations and vivid storytelling bring these stories to life for a new generation of readers. 
featuring many of the classic fairy tale characters that you loved as a child, as well as the iconic characters of Xenoscope's Grim Universe. The fourth volume of Grim Fairy Tales Different Seasons collects four of the most popular holiday specials and one-shots of the Grim Fairy Tale series. Included in this trade paperback collection, Grim Fairy Tales Wounded Warrior Special Edition, Robin Hood vs. Red Riding Hood One-Shot, Grim Fairy Tales 2012 Halloween Special, and Grim Fairy Tales 2012 Holiday Special. If you want to get any into any of the holiday spirit, you'll be able to read all of these for just $15.99 in our web store. And as always, you will never see the endings coming for what you are very used to in the Grim Fairy Tale universe. Time to find out which Xenoscopes fans have been naughty or nice. Our podcast word of the month is here, and for July, the word is as simple as a name. The fairies called Sleeping Beauty Briar Rose to conceal her true identity as Aurora. So the July podcast word of the month is Aurora. Moving forward now, let's take a look at some of the exciting events coming up on the Xenoscope calendar for July 2022. New releases drop every Wednesday, and Amber's got the inside scoop on NCW every Wednesday on Xenoscope's YouTube channel and Facebook page. This month, there are secrets tied to the legacy of the Van Helsing family that come to the surface in the latest Van Helsing from the Depths. Belle faces an enemy from her past as she searches for the entrance to the underworld prison that holds her mother in Return of Skyla. Red Agent tracks down some vicious animal-human hybrids in the island of Dr. Moreau, released in its entirety as a graphic novel. And Sky Mathers is finally reunited with her family, but must find a way to stop the war that the Dark Princess is launching in an all-new Grim Fairy Tales Volume 2, Number 61, releasing at the end of the month. Oh, and I mustn't forget, our favorite dynamic duo makes their cryptid return in Man-Goat and the Bunnyman, Green Eggs and Blam, saving the world again on July 13th, so long as they don't kill each other first. The new metal comic, metal cards, and sticker set have all been released for July and are available for subscription on Xenoscope.com, along with the new 2022 Collector's Club editions for board game cosplay and catch them throughout the month. And Carla Cohen's fantasy series returns for the fourth installment on Fantasy Friday, July 15th. Our July featured artist of the month is John Royal. He has a sticker set and six new metal cards, and you can get all three new art prints of his for just $40 this month, starting on July 12th. According to Santa Joe, it's also time for Christmas in July. Starting in mid-July and running into the end of summer, select gift products will be made available and upon purchase will include a collectible trading card. Each card will be worthy of a prize with one gold card being a grand prize. I'm sworn to secrecy on further details, but stay tuned to your emails for more. Okay, okay. One small detail as long as Joe is not listening. The grand prize is a trip. That should give you an idea of how awesome the prizes are. It's Christmas in July with a little bit of August too. And lastly, this month we're throwing a beach party like no other. Three days of VCon live streams with Ralph, Jason, Noah, Casey, and the gang from Wednesday, July 27th through Friday, July 29th. 
They'll have all kinds of sand and surf, new books and packs and prizes and games, special guests, and I'm told lots of leftover San Diego Comic-Con collectibles. That's three fun-filled days to beat the summer heat, Wednesday through Friday, July 27th through the 29th. Check your emails and Zenoscope's Facebook page for more details and to RSVP. When you think of some of the most memorable television and cinematic spectacles in action, science fiction, fantasy, and horror genres, you instantly think of The Terminator, Terminator 2 and 3, Aliens, The Abyss, Tremors, The Walking Dead, the list goes on and on. And the one common thread in all of those is Gail Ann Hurd, our featured guest this month. A legendary writer, producer, and pioneer for women in film at a time when female producers were a rare commodity and who helped usher in a new kind of hero in the likes of Sarah Connor and Ellen Ripley. In addition to all her amazing production credits, Gail was governor of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and has received numerous Lifetime Achievement Awards, including the prestigious Laura Ziskin Award, which honors a woman in the film industry whose leadership, vision, and courage set the standard for other women to follow. This month, I had the distinct pleasure of speaking with Gail in between parts one and two of The Walking Dead's final season. We got to talk about her most influential stories as a young girl, working under trailblazing filmmaker Roger Corman, making of The Terminator and the lasting impact of Aliens, what the future holds for the film industry. Here's what Gail had to say. Welcome, everyone, to our July edition of Everything Zen. We are high up in the clouds with excitement as we are joined by legendary film and television producer Gail Ann Hurd. Gail, we are thrilled to have you with us on the program. Thanks for inviting me. Now, over the years, you've had tremendous success in the sci-fi and horror genres, especially. Were you into those kinds of stories as a kid? Were you into comic books and all things scary as a young girl? Absolutely. I, I think one of the misconceptions is that girls and young women aren't fans of genre, whether it's comic books or horror, fantasy, science fiction. I was a fan of all of those. In fact, um, I advised the local public library on acquisitions for their children's department because there was no such thing as YA at the time. It was all either children's or adult. In, in much the same way as Roger Corman began working in the mailroom and worked his way up, you left Stanford with a degree in economics, joined him at New World Pictures doing admin work, and worked your way up, eventually giving way to your own production company. How, how influential was Roger to you in your career, and how different would things have turned out working for someone else? Well, first of all, I have degrees in economics and communications. So I have a grounding in film and television, not just economics. And, um, and that's why Roger hired me, actually, because I had the highest GPA of anyone in the communications department. And um, I wouldn't be where I am today. You wouldn't be talking with me. I probably wouldn't have had a career in film and television if Roger hadn't hired me. 
because at the time when he hired me, which was 1978, women did not progress through the ranks very quickly. Right. And, and with, with him, I did. Uh, I started in 78 and by, you know, 19, by 1980, 81, I was producing for him. And then you went out on your own and going out on your own can be very scary, a horror movie of its own kind. What gave you confidence and an assurance that you could do it, that you could produce movies on your own? I had none. I absolutely did not. Roger basically had the confidence in me that I didn't have myself. And he told me that I'd learned everything he could possibly teach me. And he offered me a position overseeing a group of films he was making in Peru. Uh, or he suggested that, uh, that I go out on my own. And, uh, and I decided to, to give it a try. And the first film was The Terminator. Yeah. And more iconic films in the history of cinema followed as well. Going back to The Terminator, a film that you produced and co-wrote with James Cameron, a concept that came out of a fever dream that James had that I had read. I'm curious what elements of the film had your stamp on them? You know, I, I would say that Jim has always been a supporter of strong women. Mm. And uh, people would like to credit the fact that Linda Hamilton is such a strong character. Uh, but I, I think that was something that we shared. And it may go back to the fact that uh, Jim actually reported to me the first time that we worked together, which was on Battle Beyond the Stars. And I was the assistant production manager. And he started out as a builder in uh, the model prop room. Um, and then ultimately, I helped him rise to become the art director of the film. But at the same time, he was still working under me. Um, and he didn't have a problem with it, which I have to say is not the case with a lot of men in the 70s. Mm. Did you have to convince him to direct? No, 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 no. In fact, Jim had already directed. He directed a short film, which is what got Roger Corman's attention, called Xenogenesis, mm. with, uh, with an X-E-N-O. <laughs> and, uh, and it was fantastic. And if you track down that film, you'll see that, uh, that a lot of the designs for both um, Terminator, the Hunter Killers, as well as Avatar, had their origins in that film. Let's be honest for a second. Sequels are rarely better than the originals, yet you oversaw two of the greatest films and greatest sequels of all time in Terminator 2 and Aliens. What do you think is the secret to making a great sequel? Hire Jim Cameron. <laughs> That's good. Uh, no, I mean, honestly, I, I think that the point is not to remake the first film. Mm. Um, you know, Ridley Scott's Alien is a perfect film in my mind. Um, but it's, it's a, it's more of a gothic horror film. Right. It's not a war or a combat film. So when Jim and I talked about Aliens, we said, you know, we, we can't improve on the original. There is no way. So let's do something different. And that's why 
That's why Aliens is a combat film. Obviously, it's still a horror film. Obviously, you're still dealing with, you know, the, um, the alien warriors, but, but you're now also dealing with the alien queen. Right. So you, you, so you take it up a notch. And uh, the same was true of uh, Terminator 2. Aliens with Ripley and then along with Sarah Connor created the badass female lead as we know it. I know that there were difficulties in getting the film made with the British crew, but what were some of the obstacles in getting the film made from a story perspective? Was there any resistance in having Ripley as a lead, the dynamic between Ripley and Newt, and even that epic mother-to-mother showdown between Ripley and the alien queen? Well, the, I, I have to give Fox uh, credit for embracing the story from the very, very beginning. And there were a number of administrations there. But um, um, Larry Gordon was especially supportive of that story, as well as our, our executive producers, uh, Walter Hill, David Geiler, and Gordon Carroll. And with their support, the only obstacle we really had to overcome was Fox's unwillingness to pay Sigourney Weaver a million dollars to reprise her role as Ripley. Shifting gears a little bit, what does a day in the life look like for you? And what are some of your core responsibilities? Well, I very much like being a producer on set. Um, But obviously, so you have the development process. And um, so at, at that point, I think what people are often surprised to learn is that it's very often that producers are the ones who come up with the original idea. Uh, whether it's adapting existing intellectual property or even um, or even a um, an idea that a producer may have of their own, and then we hire a writer, we arrange for the financing of the screenplay, sometimes in concert with a director, but not always. Uh, and if the director isn't involved at the screenplay level, they're brought on board after the production is ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I work very closely with the line producer to put together the schedule and the budget. And, um, and from the earliest stages, it's important to understand how to market the film. I, I'm not someone who is attracted to a project just because it's easy to market, but you do need to understand that if you make a great film, you have to know how to sell it to an audience. And, uh, and luckily when I worked for Roger Corman, I headed up the marketing department at New World Pictures. So, you know, that was another, another um, you know, quill in my arsenal. Right. And marketing, of course, is becoming more and more critical, especially in pre-production now on films, I imagine. It's always been important. And, uh, you know, I assume that uh, that's also the reason that we're seeing more and more remakes, more and more sequels, because there's already awareness of a particular title. In addition to the aforementioned films, you've produced comic book titles like The Punisher and The Walking Dead. The horror anthology series Lore was terrific and cut way too short. I'm wondering... What are the specific things that speak to your gut that you look for and find irresistible in a project? 
I really love character-driven stories. I love stories that reveal something about the human condition. I particularly respond to stories about ordinary people thrust into extraordinary circumstances who find the courage within themselves they never knew they had to overcome all obstacles and succeed. And I think you'll find that that's true of almost everything I've ever done, including uh, my documentaries. As a true pioneer for women, what advice would you have for young women today pursuing a career in the film industry? And what are some of the challenges you still see to this day? Well, my advice would be the same for men and women, which is it's a, it's a changing industry right now. And we don't really have um, the same opportunities that I had. There are fewer independent companies. Um, staffs are being slashed, as you're seeing every time you, you know, you just open the, the trades. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think it's important to have a skill set um, that people will pay you for. So that would be if you're a producer, make sure you also wear another hat, whether that's as a line producer or a director or a writer. I think those are all absolutely key. You mentioned change. Even before the pandemic, there started to be an industry shift in the consumption of film with the advent of streaming services. What are your thoughts on streaming and what do you see for the future of the film industry? Um, you know, streaming is wonderful. Let's face it, we, we all love to be able to binge watch shows. But the interesting thing is that it turns out that audiences love to wait, to wait for something they're excited about. Um, and, and I think it's, it's true of streaming, it's true of cable, and, uh, and it allows people to interact on social media on the same day when a new episode for a TV series is released, um, the way that they can when a, when a film comes out on opening day. You know, at the, at the same time, um, with the advent of streaming, there really isn't an aftermarket, uh, although that may be changing as well. I don't think Netflix ever thought that they might have to sell their library or license it, but that was how revenue was generated by feature films and broadcast television going into syndication and cable TV being sold to streaming. And we're also seeing, you know, that, that there won't be profit participation at some point in the future simply because of that, because there are no aftermarkets, which is a, which is a game changer for all of us, you know, who, um, you know, may go a couple of years between projects. You really rely on, on profit participation to keep you going. What projects or accomplishments are you most proud of and why? I think that uh, The Terminator I'm most proud of because it was my first. It was my first independent feature film. And uh, The Walking Dead because it's become such a phenomenon and uh, beloved by fans all over the world. I love the fact that we've created the Walking Dead family, which, which unites people, including the cast and the crew. 
as well as the fans. Uh, and then uh, my most recent documentary, The YouTube Effect, which is about the game changer that YouTube has been in, you know, in media and as a social media platform. Um, and that premiered just a couple of weeks ago at the Tribeca Film Festival and is directed by Alex Winter. Oh, nice. In addition to that project, do you currently have others in the pipeline that you can share with us? You know, I never talk about anything until it's in production. I, I believe if you do, it's a jinx. <laughs> you know, <laughs> obviously if a financier wants to announce it, I'm all for it. But, uh, but until such time, you know, I'm, I'm actually not even allowed to speak about anything that's in the pipeline that hasn't already been announced. I'm excited about the, the new Walking Dead spinoffs. I'm glad that we continue to be able to tell those stories. Uh, I'm excited about uh, the YouTube effect. Uh, I'm also excited because uh, a previous documentary that I produced about Wilma Mankiller, the late Native American woman who was the first woman to be principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, is just now, this month, uh, featured on the American Quarter. Mm. So it's, it's, it's a very exciting time. and. Uh, and I hope there are even more opportunities for, for women, both uh, behind the camera and in front of the camera. And I know I plan to continue uh, mostly behind the camera. It's, it's rare that, that I do a lot of publicity. So, um, you know, I, I just felt it was important to talk with you. Well, I can't thank you enough. Um, it has been an honor and a privilege um, we're definitely huge fans of your entire portfolio and for being an incredible trailblazer for women in film and women in business in general. So thank you very much for that, Gail. Well, thank you. If you'd like to check out more of Gail Ann Hurd's work or revisit the best of the best, you can find The Terminator on a variety of digital platforms, including Hulu, Amazon Prime, the Roku Channel, and Showtime. Aliens is on Hulu and Stars, and The Walking Dead seasons 1 through 10 are on Netflix and AMC, with AMC also running the latest season 11 on amcplus.com. And don't forget some other spectacular gems like The Abyss, Tremors, The Punisher, The Hulk, and of course Terminator 2 and 3. Her breadth of work is truly astounding. And that'll wrap up this edition of Everything Zen. A very special thanks to Amber, Noah, Zenoscope publisher and Sleeping Beauty author Dave Francini, and our featured guest, Gail Ann Hurd. I'm your host, Mark Sells. Thank you for listening. As Sarah Connor, played by the incredible Linda Hamilton, said in Terminator 2 Judgment Day, the unknown future rolls toward us. I face it for the first time with a sense of hope. Because if a machine, a Terminator, can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. Hasta la vista for now. We'll see you all again next month, right here on Everything Zen.